The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning. Buenos dias. My name is Josh, and I'll be reading our scripture for today. So please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. First, I'm going to read in English and then in Espanol. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself. But I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who justifies me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each of us from God. Y ahora en español. Todos deben considerarnos servidores de Cristo y administradores de los misterios de Dios. Y ahora bien, de los administradores de espera que demuestren ser dignos de confianza. Por mi parte, no me preocupa mucho ser juzgado por ustedes o por algún tribunal humano. Es más, ni siquiera yo mismo me juzgo. Y aunque mi conciencia no me acusa de nada, no por eso quedo justificado. Quien me juzga es el Señor. Así que no juzguen ustedes nada antes de tiempo. Hasta que venga el Señor el cual sacará a la luz lo esté escondido y pondrá al descubierto las intonces de todas corazones. Entonces Dios le dará a cada uno la alabanza que merezca. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Josh. Happy New Year, everybody. How you guys doing? All right. Happy Sunday. Have the New Year. Super excited. Welcome to 2024. My name is Jared. I have the honor of being one of the pastors here at the at Story City Church, and uh, man, I'm, I am just excited to be here with you guys this morning. One of Story City's values is that we are real and redeemed, but what does that mean? It means that we want to live life as a group of people who aren't trying to pretend that we're something else. We're not trying to pretend we have it all together. We're not trying to pretend that, that, uh, that we've got just our best selves up front or be one way at church and another way in our daily lives. We just want to be who we are all of the time. But conversely, it means that all of the hurts, habits, and hangups and the things that we carry into life with us also don't define us. You heard that. That's good. I like it. That's great. In fact, I would say that God has a way of taking our greatest pain, our greatest tragedies, our greatest mistakes, and forcing the outcome of evil's intent to be something that is most beneficial to us and to God's kingdom. And those things are hard because it's hard to reconcile, like, why would God allow us to go through those things and at the same time say that he's somehow going to work them out for our good? Those are hard things to reconcile. But the truth is that God is not only a God of reconciliation and redemption, but he uses broken and flawed people to accomplish his mission and purposes. And that's an incredible thing. While all of us carry scars, God redeems what is broken and makes all things accomplish what's best for us in his kingdom. And so we would say it like this, that our limp enriches our legacy. 
Our limp actually enriches our legacy. The things that we've gone through and God has redeemed actually are things that, that bring value to our lives, not things that we have to look back with and go, man, I, I'm all of this baggage, but look what God has done becomes things that are valuable to us. Our limp enriches our legacy, meaning that even our darkest places and biggest hurts point to the redemptive and reconciliatory work of Jesus. All right. Let's get to our minute to mingle question for today. A couple months ago, I asked, what makes you feel powerful? And so I'm really curious as to what the difference is between that question and this question, what makes you feel confident? So what do you guys have? What makes you feel confident? Being prepared. Yep. Yep. We got some control freaks in the room for sure. (laughs) What else? Your fiance makes you feel confident. Okay. Yep. It's only because she's sitting next to you. That's right. <laughs> I get it. What else? Good hair day. A good hair day. Yeah. That's why I shave my head. It's guaranteed all the time. What, what else? Being complimented in front of other people. Ooh, being complimented in front of other people. I like that. That's a good one. Yeah. Working out. Did it this morning, and I could barely make it up and down the steps to my office this morning. I was like, I hope I have everything I need downstairs because I do not want to go back up this morning. Uh, I'm with you. What else? Oh, yeah. Those, those one-off days where everything just like, like you had some liquid luck or something. Like, yeah. I'm, okay. What else? Yes, always. That's the only answer to everything. But I'm a little biased. So, yeah. Anything else? When doubt becomes belief, that does make you feel confident. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Assurance of salvation. Dang it, that's the one answer. Okay, so look. <laughs> did you notice that every, that's all right, Kimmy, that was awesome. But do you notice that everything else in there, though, changes? Everything else, compliments from people, compliments in front of people, right? Like somebody goes to compliment you, the one person you want to hear from, and then that person leaves the room, and then you get your compliment, and you're like, I, I, but I wanted them to hear that, too. Right, like everything else, the, the one performance, the, the, you know, all of us who ride go down at some point. Like the reality is, is that all the things that we just pointed to except a certain salvation, all of those things change. They change. And so I think that when something is unchanging, we actually have a difficult time with it. We might describe it as I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop or I'm just like, I'm not sure, but we have a hard time going back to those things that are consistent because most things in life are not. Today, we are launching a new series called Maker's Mark, Our Identity in Christ. And and I think this idea of identity in Christ is actually one of the biggest issues in church Big C, not meaning our local congregation, Big C Church across the world. I think it's one of the biggest issues in church today. And so it doesn't matter if you're still checking this Jesus thing out and you're trying to figure it out. It doesn't matter if you've been apprenticing him for 50 years. The idea of being defined And having our identity given to us, one that is solid, that doesn't change, is a difficult thing for us to understand. And it can be for several reasons. One is we just struggle to believe something that's supposed to be unchanging. The second is that many of us don't like labels. But the reality is is that all of us see the world and interact with the world around us based on who we are or who we think we are. That's just truth. Some of us have no idea that when we begin apprenticing Jesus that we're given a brand new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. We're new. 
And some of us know that, but don't know what that really means for our day-to-day lives. Yeah, sure, I'm a new creation, but it seems like just as I transition from one year to the new year, I have all these hopes and dreams, but things keep ending up the same. Now, I want you to know this. I'm going to say this up front, that if you understand what I'm truly saying from today's message, it's going to make most of us uncomfortable. Okay, the reality is, is this should make us uncomfortable. And so here's what I want us to know. Anytime there's a discrepancy between the way that we think, we feel, or we believe, between our thoughts, feelings, beliefs, or any part of us and scripture, then we have to understand it's us that's wrong and not scripture. Whether it's our understanding, our interpretation, whatever, but scripture is always right. We are not, and the Bible says that our heart actually lies to us. Our own experiences lie to us, and so the reality is there's going to be things that we come up against in the Bible that are not comfortable, and I believe that if we truly understand what's going on today, this is it. But these moments where we struggle are often the moments of the greatest growth because we have to wrestle with God, our own will, and our own brokenness. For those taking notes today, this is the big idea for the day. Jesus alone defines our identity, worth, and purpose. Jesus alone defines our identity, worth, and purchase. We're going to see today how we've been purchased, we have been revalued, and we will be renamed. So let's go back and read this again. Josh did such a good job. We should do it twice. Uh, Here we go. So 1 Corinthians 4 one to five says this, a person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will bring both light to what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. When Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, the Corinthians, uh, he addresses an issue where some people are trying to say like, whoever led me to Christ is more important than the person that led you to Christ. And therefore, I'm of more value to the church because I'm more I'm, I'm more of a super Christian than you are, right? It sounds dumb, but this is, it still happens all the time, right? Uh, and so the reality is, is that people are trying to elevate their status by claiming spiritual lineage from another apostle. And then to do that, to make one apostle look better, you have to make another apostle not look as good. And so the truth is there's this sort of like weird thing going on. And so Paul now has to actually address not only, hey, you know, that's not how we do this, but also <laughs> he has to defend himself, Hey, don't be putting me down just because you're trying to elevate somebody else. Like, I, God is still using me, and here's where I have value. And so this is where Paul is having this statement, right? And when he says, it's the Lord who judges me, he doesn't mean in the way Tupac does, right? Only God can judge me. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, so what does Paul mean? I'm glad, like, two people got that joke. That's okay. That's, that's good. Uh, I was afraid that I wasn't able to be friends with any of you if you don't know any Pac stuff, so that's all right. So what does Paul mean? It means that, look, before we get there, we have to lay a foundation, though, that, that's closely related to identity. And that is the, the, the foundations of self-esteem and pride. And we have to, we have to hit this. In 2002, uh, there was an article in New York, Times, New York Times Magazine where psychotherapist Lauren Slater wrote this. In part... The discrepancy between high self-esteem scores and poor social, skill, social skills 
and academic acumen led researchers like Nicholas Emler of London School of Economics and Roy Baumeister of Case Western Reserve University to consider the unexpected notion that self-esteem is overrated and to suggest it may actually be a culprit, not a cure. There's been a whole lot of studies out now that, uh, this was 2002, been a whole lot of studies that actually affirm that. They go on to write, there is absolutely no evidence that low self-esteem is particularly harmful, Emler says. It's not at all a cause of poor academic performance. People with low self-esteem seem to do just as well in life as people with high self-esteem. In fact, they may do better because they often try harder. Baumeister takes Emler's findings a bit farther, claiming not only that low self-esteem is in most cases a socially benign, if not beneficent condition, but also that its opposite, high self-regard, can maim or even kill. In fact, they're saying now that most domestic violence and other issues of violence come from high self-esteem. It's the individuals with high self-esteem, not low self-esteem, that actually do it. So that challenges some of our ideas and belief. Slater goes on to write, Self-esteem as a construct, as a quasi-religion, is woven into a tradition that both defines and confines us as Americans. If we were to deconstruct self-esteem and question its value, we would be, in a sense, questioning who we are nationally and individually. We would be threatening our self-esteem. Is there a way to talk about the self without measuring its worth? Why, as a culture, have we so conflated the two separate notions, A, self, and B, worth? She writes, this may have much to do with our entrepreneurial history as Americans in which everything exists to be improved as it does, again, with the power of language to shape beliefs. Perhaps, as these researchers are saying, pride really is dangerous and too few of us know how to be humble. But that is most likely not the entire reason why we are ignoring flares that say, look, sometimes self-esteem can be bad for your health. This connection of self Worth that Slater is sounding the warning bells about is exactly what Paul is addressing in his letter to the Corinthians. But why is it so dangerous? And Keller addresses the issue at hand in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and he writes, have you ever thought about the fact that you do not think or notice your body until there's something wrong with it? When we're walking around, we're not usually thinking about how fantastic our toes are or how well our elbows are working. We would only think like that if there's been a previous problem with those body parts. That's because the parts of our body only draw attention to themselves if there's something wrong with them. The ego often hurts. That's because it has something incredibly wrong with it, something unbelievably wrong with it. It's always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It's always making us think about how we look and how we're treated. People sometimes say their feelings are hurt, but our feelings cannot be hurt. Our ego is the one that hurts, my sense of identity, my sense of self. Our feelings are fine. It's my ego that hurts. My ego would not hurt, though, unless there was something terribly wrong with it. Think about it. It's very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves. That's because there's something wrong with my ego. There's something wrong with my identity. There's something wrong with my sense of self. It's never happy. It's always drawing attention to itself. Now, Keller is describing that both, uh, he's addressing actually low self-esteem and high self-esteem because he's saying that both an inflated ego and a deflated ego suffer from the same thing, pride. You cannot have a deflated ego without it having had been inflated. And so both are the same problem, pride. He goes on to quote C.S. Lewis from Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And C.S. Lewis says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, 
only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Keller argues that, like Paul, we need to understand the gospel of Christ transforms our identity. He goes on to write, Paul wants them to know the difference the gospel makes and how the gospel has transformed things for him. Look at verses 3 and 4. He shows them how the gospel has transformed his self-worth, his sense of self-regard and his identity. His ego operates in a completely different way now. And so look with me again at verses 3 and 4. It says this. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord that judges me. Paul says, I'm not defined by who you say that I am. Well, there's Pock's statement. Got it. But Paul goes on to say, I'm also not defined by who I think I am. And he goes, I'm not aware of anything that's against me, but that still doesn't mean that I'm innocent. It doesn't mean that I'm accepted. That has nothing to do with it. I still do not define my own identity. We are only who God says we are, and that is where the problem lies for us. See, we may not consciously even realize it's an issue, but it's the reason, the reason it's an issue is that in a statement that we don't define who we are means that we've lost control. It means that we've lost control. And control over who we are, that's the ethos of Los Angeles. It's actually the ethos over humanity. But losing control is exactly what the Bible has called us to do. It's why it's such an upside-down kingdom. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 27 says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself doesn't mean I don't exist. It means that what I want is not what I'm going to choose. What I want to be is not what I'm going to choose. What I want to do is not what I want to choose. It's to follow Jesus. Verse 25, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he's done. So how do we live in our gospel identity and not an identity rooted in what others think of us or what we think of ourselves? I believe it comes down to verses 1, 2, and 5. Verse 1 uh, we must be thankful. We must be faithful guardians of our gospel identity. We must protect our gospel identity. Verse one, a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and as managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. We have to be faithful with that identity. And second, we must live in this identity with a right heart, one that recognizes God as the giver of our identity and not an identity that we've earned or deserved. Verse 5, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will bring both light to what is hidden in the darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart throughout the New Testament and and in the Old Testament over and over and over again. Uh, But specifically, Jesus points to it's the heart that matters, the intention behind the things that matters. That is what Jesus is always looking at. We can fool other people all we want, right? But the reason why we, and we can fool ourselves. The reason why I did this is a good reason, but ultimately God knows the desires and the motivations. 
So how do, we uh, how do we figure this out? I think it's easier to practically live it out when we understand how God has defined us. If we're going to be guardians of that, if we're going to faithfully live in our new identity, we must, uh, we must understand how we get our new identity and what that means. And so for those taking notes, this is our first observation for the day. We have been purchased. We have been purchased. Now, I don't know about you, but the moment I hear those words, my mind goes to chattel slavery and injustice and unrighteousness. And I personally, it may not be any of you, but I have a hard time recon- reconciling that concept to what God is trying to say here. It, immediately for me, it like raises like, <gasps> but to go there is to mistake what's happened and my role in it. See, the reality is that we are not independent beings who created ourselves, though we often act like it. We didn't self-create ourselves. We're not there. We're not independent. God created us. He made us, he made us in his image. He gave us our purpose and our mission. And so we have always belonged to God as the object of his creation. Now, he loves his creation. He always has and he always will. But we always have been and always will be his creation, not his equal. This is why the prophet Jeremiah can write in Jeremiah 18, 1 to 6, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house and I will reveal my words to you. I love how God works in pictures. He shows us stories all the time. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working away at the wheel. But the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand. So he made it into another jar as it seemed right for him to do. The word of the Lord came to me. House of Israel, can I, can I not treat you as this potter treats his clay? This is the Lord's declaration. Just like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, house of Israel. Or, in the, Apostle, or the Apostle Paul, when he writes in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? In Genesis chapter 3, humanity rebels against our creator. And in doing so, we enslaved ourselves to sin and death. A contract we could not get out of for all of eternity. Sounds like a good deal. But we signed up for it. But God... But God, who told us his plan to redeem us in Genesis 3, so from the very beginning, it's not like he was like, well, let me go back and figure out what I'm going to do about this. He had a plan from right at the beginning, tells us, it's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first telling of the gospel, happens right at the time when we sin. God tells us his plan to redeem us, and he doesn't just leave his creation to suffer the fate of their own doing. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, 7 to 10, for rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more being reconciled will we be saved by his life? And also 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. That word body is not individual body, it's corporate body, it's church. Individual, he's talking to the churches to glorify God. Verses like Acts 20, 28, 
tells us that he obtained us by his blood. And in multiple places in the Old Testament and New Testament, we're called his possessions. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we have been purchased. We belong to God. This brings us to our second observation for today for those taking notes. We have been revalued. We have been revalued. Let me ask you a question. What is something worth? What's something worth? What you're willing to pay for it. Something is only worth what you're willing to pay for it, right? Um, my family and I were recently hanging out at City Walk. And we exited, I think it's a Jurassic parking uh, structure, and you come out and there's a really cool memorabilia store on your right-hand side, right? Really cool, lot of stuff I can't afford. <laughs> stuff I would love to own, uh, but... but Definitely uh, some, some rad movie memorabilia. And it's autographed, it's incredible, right? It's costly. And it got me thinking about the most expensive pieces of movie memorabilia. And I'm like, man, what, is, what does this go for? So here's the top 10 most expensive movie props sold according to faroutmagazine.com. At number 10, a themed Fabergé egg from the Game of Thrones sold for $2.2 million. At number nine, and... Listen, this is wildly undervalued. An R2-D2 model sold for $2.76 million. I have no idea why that wasn't number one, but whatever. Uh, at number eight, the lion costume from Wizard of Oz sold for $3.07 million. At number seven, the piano from Casablanca, Steinway no less, sold for $3.4 million. At number six, Audrey Hepburn's dress from My Fair Lady, million. At number five, the Maltese Falcon statue from the movie of the same name, 4.1 million. At number four, some of you are going to be disappointed, the Batmobile from the 1966 series sold for 4.2 million. At number three, Marilyn Monroe's white dress from the seven-year itch sold for 4.6 million. At number two, the Aston Martin DB5 from James Bond Goldfinger also sold for $4.6 million. And at number one, the cost of $5.375 million. Anybody want to guess what it is? It's not Star Wars. Not Lord of the Rings. Anybody else? Not Star Trek. Not Indiana Jones. Listen, not Harry Potter. I'm I'm shocked. Five, at a cost of $5.375 million, somebody purchased Robbie the Robot from 1956's Forbidden Planet. I told you, R2-D2 should have been at the top of the list. I would have taken Harry Potter for the answer. Robbie the, I didn't even hear of Robbie the Robot. But here's the deal. Even if you know and love every one of the things in these series, none of us would value them the same. None of us would value them the same. Here's what is incredible, family. The God of all the universe, the greatest, most perfect, most good, most valuable thing that could ever possibly exist or ever could be, valued us at the cost of his own torture and murder in our place. I'm going to use some big Christian words here, okay? I'm going to use some Christianese, but I'm going to help us understand it. It's called penal substitution. 
Penal substitution, as one author notes, is the act of a person taking the punishment for somebody else's offenses. In Christian theology, Jesus is the substitute, and the punishment he took on the cross was ours, based on our sin, 1 Peter 2.24. According to the doctrine of penal substitution, God's perfect justice demands some form of atonement for sin. Humanity is depraved to such an extent that we are spiritually dead and incapable of atoning for sin in any way, Ephesians 2.1. And so penal substitution means that Jesus' death on the cross propitiated or satisfied God's requirement for justice. God's mercy allows Jesus to take the punishment we deserve for our sins. In a very direct sense, Jesus is exchanged for us. That is incredible. Talk about valuing. In a very direct sense, Jesus is exchanged for us as the recipient of sin's penalty. So penal substitution is clearly taught by the Bible. In fact, much of what God did prior to Jesus' ministry was to foreshadow this concept and present present it as the purpose of the Messiah. In Genesis 3.21, God uses animal skins to cover the naked Adam and Eve after they sinned. This is the first reference to a death, in this case the animals, being used to cover or atone for sin. In Exodus 12, 13, God's spirit passes over the homes that are covered or atoned by the blood of the sacrifice. This is in Egypt before the Exodus. God requires blood for atonement in Exodus 29, 41. The description of Messiah in Isaiah 53, 4-6 says his suffering is meant to heal our wounds. This is why we can walk with a limp. The fact that the Messiah was to be crushed for our iniquities, verse 5, is a direct reference to penal substitution. During and after Jesus' ministry, penal substitution is further clarified. Jesus claims to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. John 10.10. Paul in Romans 3.25-26 explains that we have the righteousness of Christ because of the sacrifice of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says that the sinless Christ took on our sins. Hebrews 9.26 says that our sins were removed by the sacrifice of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 plainly teaches that righteousness was substituted for unrighteousness. Family, that is a lot of words all to say that Jesus gave himself in our place, meaning that we have been valued above what we think we are and what the world says we are, and now we understand how we could possibly be valued at such an expensive and costly price. We're now valued by God, not by what we've done or accomplished. This is why any good we could possibly do. When we say, hey, you're not saved by what you do, the reason we're not saved by what we do is because what could possibly measure up to that? There's nothing we could possibly do that would reach that level of value. God gave us that value, not because of what we've done or who we are, not like we were worth it, but because he loved us enough that he did value us at that. And now we're worth it because he has given us that value. We were worth what he paid for us. We are worth what he paid for us because he named us that. For those uh, taking notes, this brings us to our third and final observation for the day. And that is that we will be renamed. We will be renamed. Names are such a powerful thing. They carry meaning, but they carry much more. I, uh, when I rode with my motorcycle club, one of my favorite things was bringing my prospects in to become new members. And, and our guys worked really hard. They had a prospect for a minimum of a year. For those that don't know, uh, the process can look something like this. You, you become a guest. A guest is just somebody who's interested, like, uh, you know, just seeing. The guest process can take anywhere from two months to six months to eight months to a year. And then you typically go into a hangaround process, which can go anywhere from one to two years, depending. After the hangaround process, you might be formally asked to prospect. If you formally asked to prospect, it is in most motorcycle clubs, or at least the, 
the MCs, it's a minimum of a year. So you're talking about by the time the person gets to that place, it's a big deal because a lot has been earned to get there. And when you're prospecting, your name is prospect. That's your name. You don't have another name. Your name is prospect. That's what you're called. And if there's multiple prospects, you might be prospect number three, prospect number one, right? But you don't have a road name. It's not till you get fully patched in, that you get all your back patches, that you get your road name. Now, each club does it differently, but for our club, we wanted every member's name to have something of, of uh, you know, dual meanings, right? It, it spoke to one thing, but it spoke to their character. And their character was a big deal for us. And so one of my prospects was this really short Mexican guy. Little guy, right? Uh, But he was the first to help everyone. He didn't do anything halfway. He handled everything like a boss. Like that was just him. Like he, even kind of the way he walked was just like, I got this, right? And, uh, and so he's also a young guy with an older soul. And so we decided that his road name, his official road name would be Lil G. Like he was little, but he was an OG. So Lil G was his name. Now, the day that you receive your patches and your name is a, is a big deal. It's a big celebration. There's a lot of stuff that goes with that. And so uh, uh, I got all of his stuff made up and I w- uh, as, his, um, a- as his sponsor, as a guy that was bringing him in, I, I get to present his stuff to him. So I give him his patches and uh, I get to his name and I decided I'd have a little fun with him. So I made up a full name tape with just the paragraph symbol on it. Just the symbol for paragraph. You know what I'm talking about? The two lines and the P, right? And so he gets his patches and, and he's all excited. There's all a celebration. Then he gets this moment. He's like, all right, what, what's the, and there's a nervousness. You know, what's the, what's the name going to be? What's the name going to be? And so I look at him dead in the face, the, everybody there. And I said, hey, uh, welcome. Your new name is Paragraph. <laughs> and he's like, Cool. You can just see, like, what? Like, how does this have anything to do with, like, what par- paragraph? Like, I, huh. And I said, uh, cool. And so I just waited for a second, and finally he goes, why? And I said, well, I named you paragraph because, homie, you are way too short to be an essay. <laughs> and then I revealed his name was Little G. <laughs> Listen, throughout Scripture, God constantly renames people. And he renames people uh, based on the way that they have changed because of their experience with God. He's constantly renaming us. For instance, uh, Abram is renamed Abraham. Abram means something like exalted father, honored father. And Abraham means father of many nations. When God made his covenant promise to Abraham, he said, you will become the father of many nations. And so what happens is Abraham is now um, uh, living out this name, this purpose that God has given him. Incidentally, the name change happens for Abraham by inserting characters from God's name, Yahweh, into his name. And so it's like when God entered his name, when God entered his story, that's when we see this change in this covenant promise. The promise to bless the entire world through his offspring and be the father of many nations. Speaking of names, here's what one author writing from the Jewish perspective had to say. Names are a book. They tell a story. The story of our potential as well as our life's mission. That explains the fascinating midrash that tells us when we complete our years in this earth and face heavenly judgment, one of the most powerful questions we will be asked at the outset is, what is your name and did you live up to it? Who was the first one ever to call something or someone by a name? The Torah makes clear it was none other than God. And God used names not for the sake of identity or identification, but for creation. 
When the Torah says God created, it doesn't suggest that he worked with what he fashioned by labor, but merely that he spoke. And the very words describing the object, object came into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The Almighty merely gave it a name, and the very letters defined its atomic structure. Names are not just convenient ways for us to differentiate between objects. Names are responsible for the differences between all things on earth. The Bible tells us in Revelation that we will have God's name written on us. Surprise, we're all getting tattoos. But also that we will be renamed. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17 says, Let anyone who has ears to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word used here for name is the word onoma, which means name, but it also includes the idea of reputation or who somebody is. This goes back to the book of Genesis where one of the jobs God gave to Adam and Eve was to name all the newly created animals. And the idea wasn't just like, hey, Bob, hey, Steve, the giraffe, but to identify and call out their purpose. This is exactly what God does in renaming us. He will seal the identity, the worth, and the purpose he always intended for us to be as who we are by identifying that in the name that he gives us forever. So family, here's what we discussed today. It's Jesus alone who, I, who defines our identity, defines our worth and our purpose. We saw how we've been purchased, how we've been revalued, and how we will be renamed. And I hope that today has been helpful, but I also recognize this has been a lot to take in. So I want to encourage you to, to don't just leave this here this Sunday. Process it this week. Take some time to wrestle through it, but don't do it alone. Bring someone else along on this journey because a lot of, as we talked about being self-aware before, a lot of our, our understanding even of ourselves really does come from outside of ourselves. And so walk with somebody else. Do this journey together. Speaking of together, we will now be moving into a time of communion. Matthew 26, 26 to 28 says this, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In life, we can only go so long without food or water before we face the reality of death. In the same way, Jesus says we must abide in him. We must be connected continually to him like a branch to a vine. We must feed on Jesus or or face spiritual withering and lack of fruit. We die. William Farley writes, to abide means literally to dwell in. We dwell in Christ by abiding in the truth of the gospel. So this morning, as you come forward to take the juice and the bread, and as you walk back to your seat, before you take the elements with your family or friends or missional community group, reflect on the gospel that despite our rebellion and the wrath we deserve, God himself came to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. We are his adopted and beloved children. He's given us our identity. He's given us our purpose. He's given us our worth. And now we get to love Jesus and people. Family, this morning uh, we have uh, some people who would love to pray for you as well. And so they'll be to stage left, uh, room right, stage left. They'll be there just next to the communion. If you need somebody to pray for you, they'd be happy to pray over you. Let me start us off in this communion with prayer. Lord, thank you for all that you are and all that you've done, but even more so that who you are and what you've done has literally defined us, who we are, and now informs what we are to do in light of who you are and what you've done. We thank you that our identity is not fickle. It's not here or there. It doesn't change, but you have identified us 
And Lord, I thank you that someday that will be sealed forever and we get to live in who you say we are, not who we say we are or the world. Help us. We believe. Help us in our unbelief in the name of Jesus.